This is a Federal News Network podcast. Stop us if you've heard this before, but in a politically divided America, trust in government is at a low point. And now a survey sponsored by the Project on Government Oversight finds voters across the spectrum suspect there's corruption in the government. With a view of what Congress can do about it, POGO's government affairs manager, Dylan hetler Gaudet. Mr. Gaudet, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, tell us about the survey. What was it designed to do and what did it discover? We commissioned a survey in Michigan and Ohio. I'm sure people have heard a lot about those two states. We hear a lot about them every four years or so. They are important from the electoral standpoint, and they're also important because they are extremely narrowly divided, and they are kind of a good microcosm of the rest of the country. So we commissioned some polling there in those two states to really get a sense of what voters think about corruption, how they perceive it, as far as their priorities go, kind of like where they rank corruption. And it turns out across the political spectrum, no matter how you identify in terms of partisanship, You think, as a voter in Michigan or Ohio, that corruption is a huge problem, that it's getting worse, and that Congress really needs to do something about it. And then there are some issues that come to light from time to time in Congress itself on the shady dealings front. Absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, these things tend to crop up like clockwork. We will hear things about a member of Congress or perhaps a spouse of a member of Congress engaging in a, you know, a stock trade that looks pretty suspicious based on some potentially non-public information. So maybe there's some insider trading there. Sometimes a member of Congress is under suspicion because of something they've done in the campaign finance space, or they've received some campaign money that perhaps they should not have from a source that they should not have, or they're not reporting things they're supposed to be reporting around campaign finance. Sometimes we see a member of Congress using campaign funds in ways they shouldn't. Sometimes they will do that to um, pay for their club dues. Sometimes they will do it to acquire their own campaign materials and books. And those are all things that campaign funds should not be used for, and they represent ethical lapses, and they really just reinforce the public's perception that all of Congress and all of government and all of politics is corrupt, and it's all just really shady, which is a problem that we should all be concerned with. Yes, because the federal government is not above having ethical lapses. You know, as individuals of an organization with two million people, you're not going to get everybody perfect all the time. But in general, the perception in the federal procurement area is that it has been largely free of corruption over the decades. Is the survey showing and is there the sense in the public that maybe that's not the case, that federal agencies themselves harbor people who indulge in corruption? I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think we do a lot of work in the procurement and acquisition space, too. And we do see that there are issues, be it around the revolving doors, a cozy relationship between contractors and people in government, and then people switching between those kinds of positions. There can definitely be opportunities for corruption there. And I think one point to draw out a bit is that even if there isn't specific actual corruption that happens in a specific case, the other perception of corruption is oftentimes just as bad as the actual thing because it feeds into the feedback loop where the public doesn't trust the government and they continue to not trust the government every time something like this crops up. You know, so there can be just as bad of a downside effect when we're talking about the appearance of impropriety as opposed to actual impropriety. We're speaking with Dylan hetler Gaudet, government affairs manager at the Project on Government Oversight. And so what can Congress do about this? What are some of your high-end recommendations? Well, one thing that we keep pushing for is for Congress to start with itself 
there are, as we mentioned earlier, quite a few areas in which Congress has its own ethical problems. And while there are ethical issues that need reform and need policy interventions across the government, including in the executive branch and in the judiciary, I think it would be a little bit of an easier, at least initial step for Congress to start by cleaning up its own house. So I think enacting some reforms around what kind of financial assets you are able to own if you are a member of Congress, and that oftentimes means stocks. You know, I think it's pretty clear at this point that you should just not be able to own and trade stocks while you're a member of Congress. There are just all kinds of issues that continue to pop up around that specific thing. I think if you are on specific committees, you know, and you have a financial interest that is related to the industry or companies that are overseen and impacted by the work of that committee, I think there need to be some strong rules around what activities you're able to participate in as a member of Congress in that space and what activities you are not able to participate in. And I think trying to clear away some of those conflicts of interests are important. Trying to do something around ways in which members of Congress will seek some kind of income outside of their congressional salary. I think we need to take a hard look at those kinds of things. I think campaign finance reform is important. I think having some stronger rules around what campaign funds can be used for and what they cannot be used for and what the consequences are for violations of those rules is really important. So those are just a few things specifically that Congress can do. And I think, as I said earlier, starting with their own house and then trying to use that as a proof of concept to move on to the executive branch and to the judiciary, I think, is the common sense approach here. And just as a practical matter, there are people that come into Congress, elected into Congress, and there are people that join the executive branch who come with wealth, have come with a lifetime of great investing or great company building. What are some practical approaches to people that are wealthy but nevertheless want to honorably serve? Well, I think you're hitting on something important there, Tom, because once you become a member of the government and once taxpayers are paying your salary be that as an executive branch official or as a federal judge or as a member of Congress, you have to do a bunch of things that you wouldn't have to do if you were a private citizen. And that's part of the social compact between you and the public. And I don't think it's unreasonable to expect some of those things like transparency around your financial assets. Perhaps you have to make a sacrifice, like in terms of your ability to make money while you're in office, you know, and I don't think that is unreasonable. And I don't think most voters would think that was unreasonable either. So if you are tremendously wealthy and you're coming into government, I don't think anyone's saying you have to stop being wealthy. I think we would just say, you can't continue to make money while you're in office because your primary concern should be the public interest and it shouldn't be your own financial interest. And if that is too much of a burden for you, then you don't have to run for Congress or you don't have to accept an appointment to the executive branch or to the federal judiciary. You can choose not to do those things. But while you are a public servant, we expect that your primary interest is going to be the public interest and not your own financial interest. And so I think there should be some pretty strong rules around that. And if that means you have to not own stocks for a few years while you're in the government, I don't think that's an unreasonable And you mentioned getting back to the original survey that Pogo sponsored, that it was Michigan in Ohio in which you polled voters. And did this also look at corruption and the potential for corruption at the state level? So we didn't specifically touch on state things only because we as an organization, we tend to focus primarily on the federal level, though I think it's a very relevant point. Corruption and the perception of corruption, it is not only specific to Congress, you know, to the executive branch, to the federal level. It runs up and down the gamut at all levels of government. So I think a lot of the the, the same kind of interventions and the same kind of reforms that we're talking about at the federal level could be used at the local and state level as well. Because it all comes back to the same point about like what we as the public and we as constituents expect of the people who are representing us. And I don't think there's any huge distinction between someone at the state level or the federal level. Well, we pay taxes to all of them, I guess. So we should demand the same uh, level of ethics from all of them, right? I think that's right. Dylan Hetler-Gaudet is Government Affairs Manager at the Project on Government Oversight. As always, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Tom.
We'll post this interview along with a link to more about the survey findings at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. And that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon. Um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own. But he would stop and he would focus on me. And he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. 
Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but 
Your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.